seen political ads that make candidates look heroic and others that make them look like axe murderers. What kind of person creates political ads? How does he do it and why? You're about to find out from my next guest. Greg Pinello, political media wizard extraordinaire. Welcome to the Cultural Scavenger. Thanks, Andy. It's good to be here and that intro is too kind, but thank you. Sure. So what you do is a mystery for most civilians. Uh, let's unwrap that mystery today. You're a political media consultant. What does that yep. entail? What do you do? I make ads like it. And, um, I know that that sounds, um, deceptively simple maybe, but that's fundamentally what it is. It's, it's words and pictures and whether they show up on your TV screen, your phone, your computer, um, that's, that's the idea. And it's taking what we, what we know from polls, uh, and focus groups and online ad tests and trying to craft it into 30 seconds, 15 seconds, ridiculously now six seconds of content that six seconds, Jesus. Yep. Six second <laughs> bumpers on Facebook. It's a, it's a brave new world. Um, no, you can't hardly say anything, but, um, what you're aiming for these days is an, is aggregating impressions that add up to something in the mind of the voter. So whether they see that 30 second or 60 second ad on TV, whether they see a 15 second pre-roll ad on YouTube or whether they see something on Facebook that it's all adding up to an impression that moves the ball down the field for your client. And you're doing it for television, for online. I mean, you're doing it for all yeah, platforms. I mean, these days you've got to be screen agnostic and um, but but I mean, I think that the you know, there's an element of this that is interesting. A lot of uh, media consultants, people who do what I do, um, have kind of parted company with the future. They, they like to focus on the TV spot. That's the thing that they've been brought up to do and the thing that they've built their careers on and the thing that's still the most important. But I personally think that. Um, that's a mistake. I, I think that um, that those of us who are experienced again in putting the words and pictures together, that that experience is applicable to any screen um, that anybody puts them on. Um, and I've done a lot of radio too. Um, that's a that's still part of the equation for any smart campaign is doing radio too. So I think you've got to approach it from a screen agnostic standpoint. Um, but understand how each medium works in relation to the other and what each is good for. The 30-second spot is still, or you know, and we do a lot of 60s if you can afford them. And sometimes mm -hmm. you can do that in, in statewide campaigns or in presidential campaigns. Um, you have that opportunity to, to do it a little more. But, um, uh, you know, a, a really valuable piece of property in the media landscape is the unskippable 30-second ad. And you've all seen them. You've got to, you know, before you watch your Hulu show, before yeah. you watch your DVR'd show, you got to watch something else. And that's really valuable um, because it's always been the bugaboo of of any for any advertiser. But I think particularly for political advertisers that people can change the channel. 
fortunately, changing the channel's gotten a lot harder also. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not quite as simple as uh, last channel viewed on your old cable TV DVR box. If you're using YouTube TV or Hulu live or any of these other platforms that increasingly people are using, um, if they're even sitting in front of their TV with a remote in their hand versus sitting in front of their laptop or staring at their phone. Um, so we have ways of, of incenting people or requiring people to watch our content. And that's important for political advertising because a lot of times people will prefer not to because yeah. of the nature of it. You do have a captive audience to some degree, as you were alluding to that. If, if you want to watch that latest uh, episode of Tulsa King, you got to sit through that. <laughs> yep. You have no choice. You got to watch yep. the ads. Yeah. And, and, and that is, that is really valuable. And um, it's an important element to, to what we do now is that that notion of unskippable content because the other disadvantage that political advertisers have is money and i know that everybody thinks oh my gosh billions of dollars are being spent on political advertising but we come and we go it's a very it's a very sort of ephemeral thing we're going to dominate your tv for a few weeks maybe a few months sometimes in a presidential campaign, a little longer than that. And then we go away. Walmart's in your TV every day, all day, every day. So's Apple, so's General Motors, so's Verizon, so's AT&T. They're there forever. And they've been there forever in your entire life. So they have a lot of built up brand equity and an ability to um, just have a continual reinforcement of their message. What's Liberty Mutual's message? <laughs> How many times have you heard it? Ten zillion if you watch cable TV, you know, cable news or any of the, or anything else. As political advertisers, we've got sort of a smaller window to somehow build a brand, refute the competition, and make the sale in a very defined period of time. Um, and that is a real challenge. And I think that people who do product advertising, they tend to disdain what we do. Try it sometime. Yeah. That's my answer is try it sometime because it is not easy. And, and you know, the budgets we have to work with for production are nothing like what typical product advertisers have to use. We try to do everything as cheap as we can. That That's not an issue for Verizon or uh, which has got Paul Giamatti, you know, yeah. doing little bits as Scrooge and Einstein and ads. Well, that probably cost them a million bucks. Well, exactly. a million bucks is the media buy for a lot of congressional campaigns. And you try to spend 50 on production, yeah, 50,000 bucks on production. So, um, you know, and it's, it's been interesting also having been able to work on the last four presidential campaigns. There is always a Madison Avenue element, all the campaign, you know, the Madison Avenue agencies, big agencies, Hollywood types that they, they all want to get in the mix and feel like they're helping with a cause they agree with. So they want to do an ad for Obama. They want to do uh, an ad for Hillary. They want to do an ad for Biden. But even boy, going back to, I remember very well, because it was the first campaign I ever wrote a political ad for was 1992, Bill Clinton. I got to write a radio ad. That was 
the first thing I ever got to do. That was when you were a child, right? I was, I was 13 years old. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, but I was young and, and, you know, and the cool thing is sometimes, uh, it's this, everyone else being incredibly overwhelmed and busy is how people get opportunity. And that was the case there. Nobody had time to do a radio ad and I got to do the radio ad. It was a, it was, I think it was a donut, what we call a donut spot. There would be a middle that would be supplied by a local elected official. And then you had to have a beginning and an end. Um, and I wrote the beginning and the end and it went out as a donut and they filled in a bunch of different local political, you know, members of Congress and stuff like that. Anyway, but at that time, um, there were a couple of Madison Avenue agencies that had gotten in the Clinton's ears about, hey, you've got to, you know, do better than these political people. And uh, one of them was uh, Deutsch, uh, the Deutsch agency, Donnie Deutsch. Donnie Deutsch. Yeah. And I remember vividly <laughs> our producer riding in the elevator on the way home at like, you know, midnight, like usual during the Clinton campaign back then just railing against Deutsch because they had presented a bill for just a rough cut of a spot for $12,000. 1992, that's real money. And yeah. it illustrated, and, and not one ad that Deutsch ever produced made it on the air. Wow. Um, and that kind of illustrates the challenge. And we saw that to an extent with you know, I mean, there, I won't I won't name them. There were good agencies involved in the Obama campaign who made who did get some spots on the air and, and did make a contribution to the effort. But the vast preponderance were were, were, were from the mill of every day trying to figure out, all right, what do we got to have on the air in these battlegrounds? Let's block and tackle let's chop the wood and that's a lot of what it is and every once in a while you get to do something high profile i got the opportunity to do one of the two ads that the obama campaign aired during the olympics and that was a huge a huge opportunity because it was like wow this this one's actually going national um the buy is costing us a fortune we tested i think five or six different ads and mine was one of the two that got onto the air and um, actually beat out, um, I think, some of the, the big agency spots that were were produced. And a lot of times their stuff doesn't get produced because they want, you know, they'll say, well, look, we, we can do it for $100,000. We'll get people, you know, to donate their time and all this, which we have to be careful about in politics because that's an in-kind contribution to a mm -hmm. political campaign. You can't really do that stuff. And, uh, but, but, you know, I made a spot with stock footage and, and, uh, footage we shot of, of Obama and that's what was on the Olympics. So that, that's a dynamic that, you know, it still happens. Um, the Biden team did it a little differently. I, I don't think there were a ton of uh, outside agencies involved. In fact, there weren't a lot of agencies involved, period. They brought yeah. a lot of the production in-house. And I was part of that team. Uh, but, you know, the, the Obama team had five or six different terrific Democratic agencies involved by the end. Because it takes that much horsepower to make the number of spots, hundreds of ads that have to be done... Uh, a lot of which never see the air because they get tested and they get knocked mm -hmm. out in testing. 
you know, I think that's that's another thing people maybe don't realize is that every pixel has been sweated over and worried about and often has been through a process of, say, an Internet panel uh, where we ask 50 people to rate the ad on a bunch of different metrics and combine that with where we are strategically, what the judgment is of the the folks involved and you make a decision and that's what goes on the air for the next you know 10 to 14 days to the tune of eight million dollars in battleground states because every decision is a money decision Mm -hmm. there are you know very few campaigns that have too much to spend um obviously you know the obama campaign in 2008 was an amazing money making machine and there was a lot we could do like by half an hour the Sunday before the election nationally. That's not a normal thing that you mm-hmm. get to do sometimes. And um, sometimes, uh, you know, focus groups used to be the uh, the way we would test ads. And I've hated them for a long time. And I'm thankful that there are better ways now because you have 12 people in a room look at six different ads and the the cranky jerk in the corner rallies everybody against it yeah he's calling Um, your baby ugly yeah exactly and you're sort of like wow this but they reacted to it and they're a poor tool for that purpose i think they're good for other purposes in research but for testing ads the focus group is a is a poor um way to to understand because there's there's one thing focus groups tell you every time I don't like negative ads and I yeah. don't watch them and they don't work on me because I'm too smart. Except that negative ads work. Negative ads work. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and drawing, drawing a contrast. That's the polite term we use. Like, Oh, we're going to go up with some contrast here. <laughs> um, yeah. so we're not talking about negativity, but so, I mean, that's an example of how kind of the, the dynamic of a research instrument can shape thinking in a way that isn't um, that isn't actually uh, productive. I mean, the, the other thing a focus group doesn't tell you is whether someone will pay any attention in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always thought that the first five to 10 seconds of an ad are critical. If you're not yeah. reaching out with something at that point, you probably, even if they don't change the channel, they're... You've lost them. their phone or doing something else and not paying attention. Focus groups don't do a good job of, of s- assessing that because it's a captive. I have to watch this ad now. Yeah. There, there used to be a thing that was tried with some good effect of clutter reels where we would show people four or five, like they would see in a normal commercial break, four or five spots. And one of them happened to be the ad we're trying to get some impression about, but even still, they're very attuned. They're like, oh, I know which one you want me to talk about. That was the political ad in the middle of them, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, but but it is, um, I, I think that um, product advertisers, you know, the, the stakes are high for them too. Um, and I, I, you know, respect that. And they've got a, you know, they're looking at, well, do we increase sales a couple percent? You know, what, what are the, the reasonable objectives that we've got here? But I think they've got more opportunities to experiment, screw up, mm-hmm. try it again. Now, yours um, is a different animal. Ours is 
if you if you run a spot, you know, uh, and it's one of the four or five that you get to run during a campaign, say in a in an increasingly expensive state like Arizona, I mean, it's going to cost you at least half a million dollars to make one ad, to to run one ad with wow. the appropriate frequency. Even in a fairly well-funded campaign, Katie Hobbs was able to raise a, a pretty good amount of money. It's a campaign I was involved with. But you only have so many swings at it, and you're tied. Yeah. You cannot screw up. Yeah. And we tested really extensively, and boy, did we worry over every decision that we made. And, you know, took a risk of talking of talking about um, secession. Ran an ad about Carrie Lake being cavalier about the idea of secession. Well, there's no amount of research that's going to tell you whether or not that's the right call because that's uncharted territory. Yeah, I mean, I've done I've made hundreds of political ads and been at this 30 years. Never done an ad about secession before. I don't know how <laughs> it's going to play. You do the research, but you still don't know. You roll but, the dice and and it turned out. You know, the research you know, it popped because uh, I think that it, whether or not people believed the total case about whether she wanted to secede from the union, she sounded cuckoo. Yeah. And which she, uh, we used her words, which is an, always a, a real element yeah. of contrast that matters. If, if there's somebody that says, if your opponent says something that you can work with, um, you work with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mitt Romney's was a, it was a classic example. I, I did a spot in the closing days of the 12 campaign where he, you know, he was caught on, on camera on an open mic uh, yeah, or, yeah. yeah, on an open mic. And we used those words and just beat him, I mean, beat him about of, the head and shoulders. We beat him. I mean, we felt good about where we were that entire campaign. I don't know what research Mitt Romney's team was looking at where they thought they were going to win, but we felt pretty solid. But, um, you know, that's another element is yes. AT&T and Verizon, compete like crazy against one another and put their deals up but there's not too many ads where i i, I can't recall verizon's you know running an ad saying at&t is a tool of uh tool of leftists uh, yeah, trying right. to destroy america and uh with personal information about their ceo and the behavior of members of their board that's something we have to deal with in political advertising that the did, person is the brand. Did you ever and the brand has to be undermined did, if you're going to win? Yeah, and, that's true. Did did you ever speaking of the brand and who you, you know the team that you're on, as it were, when you first started 30 years ago, was it a conscious choice to be? I'm going if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be working for Democrats, or was it agnostic and you just happened to in in another universe? Could you have been a Republican? That, that, that's, a good, that's a good question. Um, the way our business works, you make your choice and right. you don't go back and forth. Right. That, there are a few cases where where that's maybe happened, where the the person has kind of a well, the Lincoln Project, you could probably cite as an example. They've made a choice to, you know, kind of switch their right. focus of their fire. Uh, it's been a good business for them, too. Um, but no, when you get into this you're privy to information that the other campaign mm-hmm. can't have. And you have, uh, you have to be a believer in this also to work as hard as we do 
And people, I think, probably don't appreciate that. They think, you know, people who work in politics or fly on private jets and, you know, all that stuff. How about working 70 hours a week for a year solid on a presidential campaign? I knew people on the Obama campaign who'd go out to Dulles Airport when they had a stopover just to see their kids for an hour. You got to be will. You got to believe to be willing to work that hard. Yeah. For stretches at a time, and yeah, it's a little lighter in an odd number year, but you're going to have to work hard, and you got to believe what you're doing. And it's true of the pollsters. It's true of the mail firms. People do not go back and forth. Why did you decide to get into it? I mean, you know, of all the things, why did why not go to Verizon or AT and T? You know, why or law school? Is the other yeah. thing I thought about. <laughs> you know, I just I wanted to. I, I want. I was my my dad was a professor of political science and really oh, okay. uh, instilled in me a belief in in democracy. He was a Cuban immigrant. He was a patriot and really, really instilled in in all of us kids, like a belief in voting, being part of the process, caring about who gets elected. I think my first political memory was that I think he had me. He was a poll watcher in like 1984 and had me come along. And what I unfortunately, I mean, obviously, you know, Mondale got destroyed that night. But I, what I also remember is that was the birth of Mitch McConnell that year, who has been a nemesis of mine my entire career. <laughs> um, that was when he beat a really great guy named D. Huddleston at the beginning of an, an awful relationship between the two of us. But, yeah, people don't go back and forth. Um, it's um, you choose your your you choose your side. Have, and, you, have you ever had like a real job? <laughs> Nope. I, I didn't think so. Well, you know, no, 30 well, years. You know, yeah, well, that's this. a that's a fair and interesting question. Um, I always because, ask fair and interesting questions. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, so I want I knew I wanted to be involved in politics in some way. I knew I was a pretty good writer. I I went to the the career development office and opened physical books of and I thought maybe I'd want to move to Washington and. I opened physical books with lists of Democratic campaign operations or Democratic campaign firms. So I I applied for jobs and internships with a couple of law firms. I was offered an internship to work at Meet the Press for free, which is one of the ugly things about Washington is how much unpaid in internships benefit people oh, yeah. who can afford to take them. I was like, what am I going to like work all day and wait tables at night? And people do that. And my hat's off to them. But I was yeah. like, I, I'm not going to do that. But I got offered a job as an assistant at a Democratic media consulting firm that had recently made uh, it a huge impression because it was the firm that did the ads to elect Doug Wilder in Virginia in 1989. It was the nation's first black governor since Reconstruction, mm -hmm. elected in, you know, who 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 served in the in uh, the former capital of the Confederacy. Well, this firm had done those ads, and I had read some articles about them. I was like, wow! They, and they also in 1986 had won three huge upsets in the United States Senate that helped Democrats take control of the Senate. So I said, well that sounds like a pretty cool place. And they offered me a, a job to be an assistant. And I was there for 
worked my way up for a really long time. I mean, got to work on, started there in 1991, got to work on the Clinton campaign, uh, kind of peripherally in, in 92, was doing a lot of, working on a lot of other campaigns. And when I say working, I was, you know, stuffing FedEx packages, sending faxes. Yes, those things still yeah. exist. Setting up conference calls, doing everything that needed to be get, searching through footage, listening to takes, clipping articles, all that kind of stuff. That was what it more was back then. There are a lot of differences between now and then. It used to be that what we would consider adequate frequency would be 600 gross rating points, which is uh, jargon, which all it means is that theoretically, if we're targeting adults 25 to 54, typically older than that, actually, let's say 35 plus, that in the media market where we buy the ad, that person sees the ad, 100% of that audience sees the ad six times, hence 600 gross rating points. Right Now, we like to get 1,500 gross rating points behind stuff because the media environment is so much, is so much more cluttered. There was mm-hmm. still only that many TV stations, you know, and right. only that many ways for people to watch stuff. But it also, nonlinear editing was just beginning. Uh, it took a long time to make ads. And uh, it took a, and you had to deliver physical copies to TV stations, which meant literally sometimes 200 FedEx packages going out with a new ad for the Clinton campaign to all the media markets and all the TV stations where we were running them. Uh, driven the wrong way down Pennsylvania Avenue trying to make FedEx. There was a, uh, the, the last refuge was the Dulles run, where the last flights out on FedEx were from the Dulles hub at like oh, about wow. 10 p.m. But if you're missing that, there was one last uh, alternative, which is we, we had a, uh, we, we built this capability where we would put the spot on a satellite put it on the bird, we used to call it, which mm. literally is just cost a lot of money. You, you put it on Telstar 5, and there was a uh, a TV studio facility in Memphis, which was FedEx's hub, still is, yeah. I believe. So they would pull the spot down and then make all the dubs in Memphis because that those flights didn't start going out until like 4 a.m. or something like that. Those were the workarounds. Now you just push a button. And yeah. it's gone. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I think that just the volume of stuff that we have to make now, it wouldn't have been possible back possible then. Yeah. In those days. Greg, how much input do you have in a campaign? I mean, I know you've got, but do you ever like sit down with Barack Obama and say, hey, hey, buddy, this is what, what I got in the hopper? And- <laughs> <laughs> I, I did one time. Presidential campaigns are different. There's, uh, you know, there there's a usually a big team. And I did get to sit in the Oval Office with him once discussing a script that we were about to film with him. Okay, pretty much the highlight of my life. And why wasn't Pete Souza there? And, you know, all of that. No, it, it, it does depend. I mean, you, usually in, in my role in a, you know, a statewide or congressional campaign, it's you, the pollster, campaign manager, and the candidate. And sometimes the direct mail person will have more input. Lately, the digital firm is at the table, too. Those are where, you know, the most important decisions get made. 
sometimes you've got more than one principal from a media firm involved and they divide the labor. I often focus on the creative and maybe a partner of mine would deal with the client management and talk to the campaign more about what's going on day to day. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's a general consultant involved who is essentially a hired gun who comes in to help structure the campaign, advise the campaign manager, figure out the budget and the money. That's another role that you see sometimes out there, but it's, it's always a strategic team. And the one, the, the campaigns that have a good one are the ones who win the campaigns who suck at it. Bad stuff happens. And so it's actually pretty important. I mean, in our business that there's a lot of collegiality among the consultants. I mean, I can't get mad at a particular pollster, especially because the odds are I'm going to work with that person again. What I learned through my uh, short career as a candidate, (laughs) it's it's a very uh, tight industry and, uh, you know, in a small world. Will there ever come a day when you decide, hey, I'm going to write for Hollywood? Yes, uh, though not uh, immediately, uh, not, not to the exclusion of the other, probably, unless one gets really lucky. No, I'd love to write a I'd love to write a, a series or a or a screenplay about how the business really works, because I don't think there's been very many good movies or TV shows about politics. I mean, the candidate back in the day was yeah, pretty about good. as close as you could get. A different era. Veep captured a lot of just some of the insanity and hilarity that can ensue. But there's a lot of really terrible, terrible movies and shows about politics. There's a famous one from the 80s, Power with Richard Gere. You know, it's just yeah. goofy. But I think, but I because I think the story I'd like to tell us of really hardworking, passionate people who are out there trying to impact the world and the process in accordance with beliefs and also make a good living in a job that is crazy that this happened to me. You show up on a set and you're filming the lieutenant governor candidate. It's, it's a, a former TV news anchor and there's a way too much cleavage. Well, what do you do in that situation? <laughs> in my case, it was have my my female colleague apply a little bit of uh, powder to take the shine off of it. At least <laughs> it's that kind of stuff that that can be hilarious and that is interesting. And you know, I mean, you know, we go out there and we film for these campaigns, and uh, we fly into town and we pick up usually a local crew. We usually bring our own. Mm-hmm. Uh, director of photography, cameraman is how most folks would understand it because we got particular people we trust and work with. And but then you're working with the campaign folks, and a lot of some of them are volunteers, and most of them don't make hardly any money. And you're there, and you develop relationships and a real respect for what they're trying to do. The the person they're working for is actually going to represent them, and you gain an appreciation for the process and how much it matters to, you know, it's not just us high tone consultants doing this. It's a lot of young people working really hard, going door to door, working the phones, walking the streets, working down a, a, a walk list, you know, all of that stuff that 
a lot of good people that uh, you had an, a, an appreciation for. Well, man, keep uh, spreading the good word. And uh, when the time comes for you to go to Hollywood, uh, you know, I would like to brush up my acting chops again. So maybe you can cast me in your, well, your Hollywood you've got, you've got uh, real experience as a candidate. So that role might, uh, that, <laughs> yeah. that role could be available. Well, you know, look at Fred Thompson and it's true. Ronald Reagan. It's true. <laughs> Stack them, pack them, and rack them. That's Fred right. <laughs> exactly. But thank you for having me. It was really hey, fun. Hey, it was fun. Uh, we could go on forever, and we will do it again another time. And in the meantime, thanks for joining me. Terrific. Thanks, Andy. You bet. Take care, buddy. Well, that's the story. A special acknowledgement to Mary Ann Kennedy, Pat Bunch, and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from Safe in the Arms of Love, a song Allison loved. If you liked what you heard, please share my podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, why not subscribe? And I'd sure appreciate a great rating in Apple Podcasts, too. I'm Andy Parker, and I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening.